Welcome to Precision Medicine Forum Podcast, chatting with patients, healthcare, industry and research professionals about creating personalized medicines for each and every one of us. Together, we head to the holy grail, mainstream precision medicine. Here's your host, Steve Coldicott. Hi, welcome to Precision Medicine Forum Podcast, the first of our series this month focusing on breast cancer with it being Breast Cancer Awareness Month. I'm delighted to introduce our first guest. Um, many of you, I'm, I'm sure, will be very familiar with her, her amazing work, uh, Dr. Laura Esselman from UCSF. Good morning, Dr. Esselman. Morning. It's all well and good reading someone's CV and, and giving a long intro, but actually it's much better from the coming from the horse's mouth. So I wonder if you could just give us a bit of background about yourself, your work now, your role at UCSF, um, you know, a little bit of history about yourself. Okay, well, I'm not going to give a long <clears throat> introduction. I don't think people need that, but I will say that <laughs> I'm trained as a surgeon. I currently direct the Breast Care Center at the University of California in San Francisco, and that includes all of the disciplines that come together to take care of women with breast cancer. I have <clears throat> lead a number of large uh, platform trials, uh, one on screening, one on trying to optimize the care for women with high-risk uh, breast cancer, and um, hopefully soon one on uh, tailoring treatment for women with DCIS. And also during the pandemic, I led a uh, platform trial on ice by COVID. <clears throat> Long story. <laughs> oh, just, just sort of park that. That's just a, just a nothingness. <laughs> So I, I, you know, I, I, um, I believe that, you know, no diseases, you know, breast cancer is not one disease, right? It's easy yeah. to understand a disease. People think about allergy. Everyone understands that there's some people who, you know, have occasional allergies to dust or pollen. And some people have ragweed allergies. Some people get asthma. And some people get anaphylactic reactions to peanuts or to uh, bee stings. You, no one would expect anyone to treat those the same. Everyone accepts that those are different. Everyone accepts that they're very diff different kinds of conditions. So that's really how it should be for cancer. You know, back in the 80s, when we really didn't know this and we thought breast cancer was one disease, we didn't even know that there was a, you know, uh, an estrogen receptor or something that was very different. And we assumed that everyone had the same risk. And, you know, that's how we got into this whole business of screening everybody the same. But in fact, you know, it doesn't really make sense for us to do that. And I think one of the ways I got into what I was doing is, you know, asking, I, you know, I, I have, uh, I, I myself am interdisciplinarily trained. I have background in policy. I have uh, background in business administration. I have background in science and basic science and immunology. Um, so I bring a lot of different skills to bear. And what I really wanted to do was try and figure out how to create an integrated program to take care of women where we could really think about how to optimize the care of every person who came in the door, uh, tailoring to biology, to patient preference, and to our own performance, meaning you know, how good are the things that we have for each person. That's, that's been my philosophy for the last 30 years. So that's what I've been going about doing. So my, the, the clinic and where we practice is really an example of that, of how we really work to be very much more patient-centered and to uh, the trials that I design are that way. You know, it's one thing to say, 
breast cancer is heterogeneous and then you treat them all the same. I mean, that's not very useful. And long ago, I partnered with a woman named Nola Hilton, who had a PhD in physics and had developed the first sequences for what is now breast MRI. And we partnered using this very powerful tool to take a closer look inside the breast to really demonstrate how very different and heterogeneous you know, both the background in which the cancers arise and the cancers themselves are. So how then could we use this tool to help us as a catalyst for change to understand our performance? If we give it treatment, is it working? As a surgeon, I could say, look, it doesn't make sense to necessarily operate first. What you want to do is try something else first so you know how it's working. That's, that's a lot of the philosophy of what I bring to the table. I'm constantly trying to figure out and ask the question, is what we are doing working? For whom is it working? And how can we make it better? And where it's not working, how can we make a change? That to me is the essence of, I mean, that is what most people want. And that's what we need to strive to do. It's hard because sometimes things work and that's great. Sometimes they don't work and we don't necessarily know why, but that doesn't mean we stop. That means we keep looking, we keep working, you keep bringing different groups of people together to ask those questions and be able to do that. So the landmark trial that a lot of people know about is the ISPY trial, which is really that is about trying to figure out how do you get better outcomes for women at highest risk for breast cancer. Highest, you know, so breast cancer is not only different in terms of the treatment staff, but it also is different. There are different types. Some recur very early and some recur late. So the most aggressive cancers, your risk is in your first three to five years. And some of these slow-growing tumors, it's not that they have no risk, it's that they have late risk. And again, we tend to give all the, those women hormone therapy, but you don't know if it's working until someone has the tumor come back, and that might be 10 or 15 years, and that might be too late to really make the difference. So the trick again is, how do you figure out early on whether what you're doing is working. What are the right endpoints, early endpoints? What are the right biomarkers? If they're not there, how do you develop them? And really, how do you make everything a learning system? So you're learning every time someone's coming through. And tomorrow you're better than you are today. Always. That's the trick. And, you know, now trying to figure that out for screening to try and say, you know, if everyone's not at risk for the same cancer then why are we screening the same? And if, you know, if all these cancers are different, clearly and surely we can do something different than what we're doing. And that's the wisdom study. Okay, so, so firstly, you've been doing this for a long time. You must have seen huge change over the years, decades. Is it easier? Is it more complex? Is it better? Is it worse? I mean, um, where are we going? Well, I think it's much better. And the possibilities and the opportunities are much better. I mean, when I started practice, this was the end of the era where women were going to the operating room. They had no idea if they had a cancer or not. They would do a frozen section. And if it was, they would do a radical mastectomy. Sounds archaic and barbaric almost, doesn't Terrible. it? Terrible. And, and we did these barbaric procedures, and we didn't really know much. Um, women had no choice. They were angry and it was terrible. And we didn't really have science. I mean, 
the one great thing about breast cancer is there's been, you know, two decades of people really working on the science and has really made a big change. And that is fantastic because it's, you know, we understand many more of the pathways. There's many more opportunities. There are many more agents. I mean, look at HER2 positive disease, a disease, you know, that was considered to be uniformly fatal when in fact now it is the most treatable cancer because we have drugs and treatments that work for it very specifically. And every year or two, we have more and better drugs coming out. It, it's, it's very exciting. And to me, I'm trying to get those drugs that are effective earlier on. Early on, I didn't think we would be able to get to a place where we would get to prevention in a serious way. I really believe that now. I think there are amazing things that we can do. If we really understand what's driving breast cancer risk, we can do things for people way early on to reduce their risk. I, I think that there are going to be many opportunities to figure this out. You know, we have all these powerful tools to understand not just whether you have mutations in the, in the genes, the rare mutations that really cause an increase in risk, but we can look at many of the small variations in which people inherit, and we call that poly, many, genic, gene, risk, polygenic risk. And we can ask, what's your risk? Now, some of that predicts for low-risk breast cancer, or, not, or I would say slower-growing breast cancer. But we can develop it for higher-risk breast cancer. There's so many more tools available. And there's a lot of people working on it. It's very exciting. I think that what's critical is you have to have some urgency. Sorry, when you say you, you have to have some urgency, are you talking about you being the oncologist, the surgeon? Are you talking about you, the patient, or who are we talking about? No, no, I think the patient's got plenty of urgency. They're the ones that's diagnosed. <laughs> right, yeah, I, I mean, this, this is, I'm saying us as a community, I, I think I'm criticized for wanting to move too fast. Um, I, I feel like we're not moving fast enough. And, and I feel like there, there's, I, I feel like there's a lot of risk to standing still. If you don't change, we're going to be stuck with the same outcomes we have today. I don't think those are acceptable. We have to do better and we have to do it with more urgency. That doesn't mean we're stupid about it. It means that you have to work harder to find those early endpoints and move using those early endpoints and take a little bit of risk. No, no risk, no gain right? Everything you try isn't going to work. And, you know, I, I think a lot of people say, well, I'm happy to be in a, you know, or a lot of physicians will say, well, I'm happy to be in a trial. I just don't want there to be any risk. I'm like, well, okay, that's not possible. That's why it's called a trial, right? Exactly. And you know what? Some of the things are going to work and some of the things aren't going to work. I, I was, I was uh, recruited to go to business school actually after I, at Stanford, after I finished my surgery training by a man named Dylan and Tobin. And he uh, had recruited 10 physicians through this Hartford Fellowship Program you know, to come and learn about the tools of modern management and systems application and with the hope that he would get some of us to go back in and try and change medicine. I, I don't know that I've changed medicine, but I am certainly trying. But I... Well, he's got, we know that he's got one. Here she is. <laughs> <laughs> and I think there were two really important things that influenced me that, that I, I'm very passionate about. I, and one is really the underlying philosophy that delivered us Silicon Valley, that, that really, you know, the Andy Groves of Intel and, 
Steve Jobs, and all of these people who were able to move and change. It is that philosophy that, you know, Andy Grove used to say he never put a product on the market without having the two, three, four, and five in the pipeline. And he was like running these in silico experiments, ready to run. And they, what they did was a giant, you know, rapid trial. I mean, everything they launched, they've got the data to collect and the way in they, they, they have an early endpoint and they can change. They have this constant ability to change. That's what's given us the opportunity for me to talk to you across the pond, you know, on a computer. But it's that kind of drive where you see that change. Now, certainly people aren't widgets, but it's the it's not that. It's the philosophy. I can give you an example. And then how would we figure this out? So for women with early risk for breast, to die of breast cancer, in the old days, when we think about drug development, this is how it normally goes. First, you try something in uh, metastatic disease, uh, and you do a phase one trial to look for safety. Then you do a phase two trial to make sure that there's activity, and then you test to see whether it's working or not, and that can take, you know, five to ten years. And then, if it's working, then it was brought into the clinic by giving it to people after they had had surgery. You would recruit a bunch of people, thousands of people, because you have no idea who's got what kind of disease and what kind of response they have. And then you wait five years. That drug development cycle is 15 to 17 years. Well, Herceptin took 17 to 19 years to get to the clinic. Is that what we want? It is not what we should want. There are some drugs, and in fact, the immuno-oncology drugs are the perfect example of this, that you know don't work that well. They work okay in the metastatic setting, but they work much better in the early stage setting because people have a much more intact immune system. So maybe the metastatic setting is not the best place. You know, drug like Gleevec, you know, or CML, it it's, doesn't work if you're in blast crisis, but it changes your outcome completely if you bring it in the earlier stage setting. So, so there's that. And then there's also, well, what's going to be the early endpoint? It turns out that the order of therapy doesn't matter. You can have the same outcome. So if I operate first or if I operate second, if I start with this systemic therapy, it, it's not going to change whether you live or die. Because the truth of the matter is, I'm a surgeon. I know where my place is. If someone's, someone who's at risk to die is at risk to die because the disease gets out of the breast and takes up residence someplace else. That's what you're trying to prevent. So the surgery is the cleanup. It's not, it's not the, th I would love to say that I was the hero in saving somebody's life, but it's not that. You have to know where and when to apply each tool and each craft. I consider myself an oncologist first or a patient advocate first. And I'm trying to figure out how do I help people most? So by waiting, giving the treatment first in these faster growing tumors, people with molecularly high risk disease, whether or not that tumor disappears is incredibly predictive of what's going to happen in the rest of the body. You can go from 50% risk of dying or 90% risk of dying to a 5% risk of dying by looking at the response to treatment. But that's opportunity. You can take that opportunity and figure out how to treat. 
And within the high-risk groups of patients, there's not just one kind of disease. There's probably five or eight different types there. And you want to work on optimizing where, you know, if there are T-cell infiltrates, there's certain kind of tumors that really respond to these immuno-oncology drugs in combination with chemo. Fantastic. Combine those. Drive it. Figure it out. But if you don't have that kind of tumor, don't use that because every drug has side effects and has problems, including these new immune drugs. And so you don't just want any drug. You want the drugs that work. And you want to be able to figure it out in a timely way. This is the problem. And this is how you can move fast. That's what the iSpy2 platform is all about. And we made a lot of progress. From the time we started, we had like a 19% overall complete response rate. And, you know, we got up to about 40%. And probably with the right way of assigning or characterizing drugs, and assigning them, we can get to 60% even now. But 60% isn't good enough. We want it to be 90%. And I'd like to be able to use these novel drugs. There's new antibody drug conjugates. There's different ways of manipulating the tumors. Let them have their day in court. Give them a chance to work. And give them a chance to work when they might make the biggest difference. Where it's not about extending somebody's life, but saving somebody's life. So... We've moved on to ISPY, what I call 2.2, which is try these new agents and combinations first. We have a fallback. So if it's six weeks, it's not working, you can move on to the next block of treatment. And using and then we can assign those blocks of treatment based on the type of tumor each person has and give them the best of what we know. And if there isn't something really good, we can keep testing or we can keep optimizing. And then and only then, if you don't respond, would you get AC? And maybe we'll have something better that replaces AC. And just having that platform out there sends a signal to drug developers. There's a place for your drug. There's someplace new that that can come. And now we have what we call an endocrine optimization pilot for the people who have big tumors, who are still at risk, but don't have those fast-growing tumors, who have that bigger risk of response at five and 10 years, or maybe even 15 years. How do we know when we've got the right treatment? What are those early endpoints? Making the tumor go away isn't probably the right thing. But there are things. What's that early response in on MR? What's the background response? How do you know someone's sensitive to your medication? How do you start comparing? And that's what we're putting in place. Because I'm not satisfied with that, that pretty soon that's going to be the cancer that kills most people. So you have to have systems in place. And then I'm actually doing the same thing in DCIS right. and hopefully in screening. And ductal carcinoma in situ is, you know, this early, um, uh, it, it, it's a precancer. It in itself won't kill you, but the risk is that it may go on to cancer. And yet for the last 25 years, you know, we, we've been treating it as if it's cancer. And this is a disease of screening. This came about, it was maybe 3% of all cancers before we started screening. Now it's about 25%. But it turns out that DCIS, not surprisingly, has that same heterogeneity as people with breast cancer. Some are probably nothing, never going to go anywhere. Some are really actually high risk. Some are precursors of HER2 positive or immune driven cancers. And guess what? They all need a different approach. We have a trial with immune where we're directly injecting things to manipulate the immune system 
And I've been working on this for a long time. It's finally starting to work. It's very exciting to see. You know, there's no one so informed or so effective an advocate as the person who has the disease. They go in, a lot of people go in, there's a lot of information out. They go in, they read, they think, and they go, wow, this is stupid. Why, why am I being told I have to have my breast taken off? I mean, I just, I, I, I just talked to someone last night who had atypia, who was told that she should have a mastectomy and she should have it done in the next two weeks. That's not even DCIS. What are we thinking about? And, you know, the thing is that, that people of atypia, these are people at risk for, you know, that we have effective treatments. And guess what? It turns out that based on the background, I, you, know, you can look at MRI and tell whether someone's at risk, how much risk they have, and when. And there are all these things that you can learn about how do you manipulate the background enhancement, whether that's working, whether you have a focal lesion that is surgical or not. Probably half the women don't even have that. They just have high risk. And that actually takes you into the whole prevention realm. How can you, how can you reduce the risk? How can you start thinking about that, right? You know, how is it, again, you know, it, you, 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 you go back to Moore's Law or Metcalf's Law and you want to think about how, you know, how did you, how do you start with, to get to an industry, you know, that you have, you know, you know, billions of chips going out. I mean, you know, you know, millions of chips in, in a little computer that's going out by the billions all over the world. You know, it's that kind of pace of change that we want to start. We want to inspire people to think about it, not just go out. Personalized medicine isn't everyone doing whatever they feel like. It's an organized way of trying to learn very quickly who's responding, who's not responding. What is the underlying biology of the people who are not responding and how do you change it? Right. And so this is, you know, and, and, and so, so DCIS actually then becomes a gateway to understanding about prevention. And then you can start looking and say, oh, well, people with high risk have a lot of background enhancement on, on MR. We can really better understand that biology and figure out how to reduce that. And then we can think about, you know, all through our lives, women are exposed to all kinds of hormones or uh, often, you know, hormonal treatments for contraception or various other things, you know, if we really understand the biology of breast cancer and what's driving it not, we can design things that are necessarily lower risk. And we'll have many opportunities. So tell me about screening, because I know, you know, you have this amazing vision with the Wisdom Project. Can you tell our listeners about that? What What is Wisdom? How, how does it work? How is it going to personalize screening. Wisdom stands for women informed to screen depending on measures of risk. And the idea is if everything I'm telling you, right? So one of the most striking things is in that I spy two trial where we're looking at these high risk women, the vast majority, 80 over 80% of women are, do not have screen detected cancers. So what does that tell me? The people with the highest risk, fastest growing tumors are not the people that we're helping with the way we're screening today. That's a problem. It's not like cervical cancer where screening really dramatically brought down the risk of invasive cancer. I mean, I'm not, it's, that's just a fact, right? So we'd like to make it better. And who can argue with that? Nobody, you know, and it's like, no one should be saying, oh, well, you're criticizing what I'm doing. Not, I just want to make it better. And we put a huge amount of resource into screening. And for that, 
we should be thinking, are we getting it? Are we getting the services to the right people? Are we getting the resources to the people who are at highest risk for having the disease, for getting, having, and progressing? And what about the people who have incredibly low risk? You know, are we putting that same sort of resources in there? You're just getting all the harms. You're finding all these little things that really aren't going to be anything. And, you know, that that's, that's harm. So yeah. you have to think about what you're doing and why you're doing it. We have to right-size our efforts. And so the, the first, you know, just like any other trial, you start with where you can, you know, and, and then you move on. And you move on and you create a learning system, again, where you keep learning. So in screening, screening is just screening. It's not prevention. What's missing in screening is so like, how is it possible? In the U.S., there's a lack. A lot of people still believe that screening every year, starting at 40, is the best thing to do. That, that cannot be true. It just cannot be true. Everybody doesn't have the same risk, and everyone's not at risk for the same cancer. So it cannot make sense. People say, well, you don't really know who's at risk. Well, if you don't try, you'll never get there. So we started with just simple things. Like there are genes that predispose people to the risk for breast cancer, BRCA1, BRCA2, PALP2. There are like tons of these genes, but there are really nine ones that really have a risk. They're pretty rare, actually. You know, maybe two, three percent of the population. And for the really aggressive cancers, even the genes are different. Check two is more often a slow-growing hormone-driven cancer. BRCA1 is more aggressive, triple negative breast cancer. These are important. Even the genes have different risk profiles and different things you would do, right? But the most important thing is risk assessment. We cloned these genes in 1996 and 1997. Now it's almost 30 years, 25 years later. What are we doing? Nothing different. So when I started this trial, I said, well, surely we can take the things that we know and put those into place. Why are we not just testing everybody? Part of the reason was it was very expensive and, and challenging to do. But, you know, when the Supreme Court ruled that cat patent the genome opened the door for next-gen sequencing, and really there are, were some companies that really brought the test down to make it less than the cost of a mammogram. So is that your argument? So is your argument that you would say, right, we'll, 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 um, we'll test people, and then we'll de then we'll decide whether who who needs screening basically. And, and I started Wisdom 1.0 within one of the guidelines in the U.S. And even that was considered heresy, you know. But but there's people who you know the the U.S. Preventive Task Force says every every other year starting at 50, American Can uh, College of Radiology says every year starting at 40, and everybody else is in between. So I started within those guidelines. And the thing that's really interesting is that when we, so we partnered with Color Genomics. It was a very affordable, very high quality test. They, you know, they also do a lot of COVID testing. So their, their platform is very good and very affordable. Cheaper than a mammogram, you know, you do it once. Now you know this, plus you can get all the background information, the polygenic risk that I was talking about. So we can, so we combine polygenic risk, the gene sequencing, all the usual things that we do to look at breast cancer risk. And we figured, well, we're probably able to predict about 70% of the risk. That's the first, that was the first tranche. And that we believe that it could be as safe as screening every year at 40. Now we haven't, we have, we have to do another two years of follow up to figure that out. But so far it's safe to proceed. So 
and that makes sense, right? There's like, it's like a lot of smart people come up with these different guidelines. And so there's, there's good rationale for all the thing is, Dr. Essman, that makes, that, that makes sense to someone like me, right? I'm not a scientist, nor am I a healthcare practitioner. If it makes sense to me, it means that it would make sense to, you know, the person on the street. Okay. That's the start. I'm not ending there as I like to build platforms that continue to learn. Right. And so the goal is now you're starting. How do you keep making it better? Well, the obvious thing, to, first thing to look at is how do we do with finding those mutation carriers? Did everyone have family history? By no means. Two thirds of the people who had some kind of mutation didn't even work flagged via family history. So for sure, this tells me that everybody should be screened. And by the way, if you're BRCA1 or BRCA2 and BALB2, when's your biggest risk? In your 30s. You should be screened earlier. So we should be moving that first test. Doesn't matter when you do it. Do it at 30 and get that 1% or 2% of the population who's truly at high risk. Look at the people who are getting cancer in their 30s and 40s, their, their early 30s. We're not helping them with screening every woman starting at 40. We have to know who these people are and we can know that. So get started with that. Plus using iSpy2 data and, you know, and again, iSpy2 is a huge biomarker rich trial. It's a huge opportunity to keep learning. And one of my colleagues, Yiwei Shea, has now used that to help develop a polygenic risk score for women with aggressive cancers. So we're going to apply a threshold for that. Am I sure that it's right? Of course I'm not sure it's right. But it's just screening, right? Uh, but how do you test things? You have to learn, right? You've got to take some risk to make a change. You know, I've looked recently at the amount of money that we're spending in the U.S. on screening is in the $20 billion range. Somewhere, I mean, it's, it's huge. If we applied all the guidelines, the ECR guidelines, because we've increased the use of tomosynthesis and all these other things, we're spending a ton of resources on screening. We need to get those resources and make sure that we're working on driving screening. And there's a couple of really interesting opportunities for the people at highest risk. Yes. Get them screened early. You have to contrast MR follow with alternating with mammals, probably the best things, but maybe that's, I don't know, 5% of the population. Then there's probably another 15% of the population that is high risk based on our usual things, the Tyrocusic model, the breast cancer consortium surveillance model, um, Gale model, those things. And you know what? Those predict for lower grade, slower growing, hormone-positive cancers. And why is that? Because that's the most common cancer. So it's not that big a surprise. But if you're at risk for that kind of cancer, you're probably also highly likely to benefit from risk reduction, lifestyle interventions, you know, medications now that, that we know even at lower, very tolerable doses, baby TAM, other things that are coming up, starting to look for different kinds of Manipulations, again, that we can start testing in the setting of DCIS. How do we optimize breast cancer prevention? Risk assessment is the key. If you are at higher risk and at risk for what? We can start doing things not just to find cancers, but to prevent them. And if you're at average risk, okay, then maybe you'd start 50 in every other year. And if you're pretty low risk, maybe we can do what they do in the UK every three years, starting at 50 or 55. And if you're in that 10% of people who have almost no risk, why are we torturing you with a bunch of tests that aren't going to help you? 
Is this true? Is this going to work? Oh, I don't know. I'm going to put it to the test. That's wisdom 2.0. I hope to be doing that by next year and take, you know, keep going, right? And all these people every five years, another screening algorithm until we get it right. Obviously, wisdom you know, sounds absolutely amazing. And anyone who's listening to this, I'm sure they'll be thinking, okay, I'm hoping you'll be able to answer this question. Is there anything else like it anywhere else in the world? One. And the second question, why can it not be used for other for other disease types? Well, could. There's nothing. I mean, everything I do is very systems-based. That's the thing that I took from my management training at Stanford. Right. Suzette Delaloge, who's running a, a big effort in, uh, in, the, U, in the EU uh, called MyPEBS, My Personalized Breast Cancer Screening, she emailed me and said, hey, can I join your trial? And I said, no, it's not going to work because we have a different standard. You know, in France, they do every other year starting at 50. You have a different control. Like, why don't we do parallel trials and we'll agree to analyze our data together? I said, but, and it's interesting, they didn't feel like they could introduce the gene sequencing or full genetic testing. And I didn't feel like I could take the bottom 10 or 20% of people at risk and not screen them. Right. So together, we can learn a lot, right? You know, and that, and that, but people are trying to think about these platform trials. So when COVID came, you know, that there, that you can have a continuous learning platform recovery trial was like made the, you know, because they said, okay, we've got to learn from everybody. We've got to keep going. And, and they did made an amazing contribution, but I had had one of my colleagues in pulmonary critical care had spent a year sabbatical with me right before the pandemic hit Carolyn Kelfi. And you know, when the pandemic hit, I said, well, I, I think now's your moment. She goes, well, we don't know how to stratify the patients yet. I said, well, just get started and, you know, start collecting the data so that we can get to figuring that out. And, you know, we put 3,000 patients on this trial. We tried a whole bunch of different drugs. And I think one of the things we came to, the, one of the reasons why adult respiratory distress syndrome is so hard is because it's considered one disease. And surely that's probably not one disease. And so just being able to say, oh, this is an inflammatory type versus not, again, is that going to be the, the thing that makes a difference? I don't know. But unless you look, unless you try, it's not going to happen. But you notice there's a lot more platform trials, a lot more efficient trials. And, and the thing is, I, I really am a big believer that you have to drive efficiency. You know, I, many years ago, founded an organization called Quantum Leap Healthcare Collaborative with the goal that we would work on personalized, you know, helping to drive efficiency, kind of get that Silicon Valley mindset to drive efficiency in the way we do trials. And the other thing, which I didn't say, I'd said the second thing that really inspired me when I was in business school was looking at systems that change things. You know, when it used to be that banking and the stock markets and the whole financial systems were just chaotic. Well, actually, Michael Bloomberg, when he was at Solomon Brothers, built this whole system to really, you know, quantify and organize financial systems so that, you know, that you could track it, that you could have data that came in on a continuous basis. So, you know, this is the data that drives all of our financial systems and it's very efficient. Why don't we have that in medicine? I'm determined to make that change. That's that before I die, we, we can't have learning systems. If you, if you don't know what you're doing, and you don't get routine feedback on what you're doing, you can't improve it. You can make it better. Trials 
you know, are an important part of care, but they're a heroic effort. They don't have to be if we just improved our clinical systems. I'm sure that every patient or every person who's sick hopes that their physician is constantly learning and improving and trying to figure out what to do next. You can't do that if you don't have systems that allow you to collect data routinely and constantly improve it. You know, it, that's going to have to change a little bit the way we think about privacy. And it's going to have to change because, you know, in any system, like in the UK, you have all this data. You can do that. We don't do that. We don't collect it in that same way. But we also, you know, we give our data away on a daily basis through the internet, through our credit cards. You know, you have to say in the healthcare system, people are going to be responsible with it, but put it into a format and into a place where there is that ability for continuous learning. That's what we need. And then when you're doing a trial, it's just it's much easier, right? And, you know, trials can be more efficient. There are a lot of things that we do that are wasteful. Every time you want to try a new drug, you start a new trial. What a platform is, and say, like, you know, I'm going to run this experiment 10, 20, 30 times. I'm just going to put the platform in, and I'm just going to keep dropping a new drug in all the time. I'm not going to I, I the, the wisdoms, I mean, the iSpy trial has 30, 34 sites. You know, I, I have a central IRB. Now, we have a central IRB. Every site doesn't have to, you know, review it. Are the patients in North Carolina different from the people in San Francisco? You know, they're human beings. If it, you know, get a central good ethics board and make sure that you're working to improve the study, but then don't go through all this churn. You have no idea how much time all this takes. You know, and everyone has their own ethics board. We don't need to do that. There's so many opportunities for efficiency. Well, it's, it sounds incredible to me because it's just, I'm sure it's not, but it just, it just sounds like common sense in many ways. Certainly the wisdom trial. Um, so look, I've taken loads of your time. I really appreciate it. We could talk forever, I'm sure. I'm going to have to ask you, if you don't mind, to, to, to do the one final little thing that I like to do for our, for our podcast. And I'm, you know, I'm sure that you've pretty much answered some of these questions along the way. But we're going to do our little feature, which is forward in five minutes. And I'm going to ask you from the perspective of the, what we perceive to be the five key stakeholders, how they can help to push precision medicine forward. Now, I'm going to suggest that you try and stick to a minute for each to get to the five minutes. Um, so, I've got our almost world famous... Is that upside down? That's always upside down. Our almost world famous clock. Can you see that? <laughs> okay, perfect. Okay, so I'm going to ask you in five minutes, we'll start with... Um, let's, why don't we start with patients? How can patients help to push forward precision medicine? So every patient should ask questions. You know, what are my opportunities? You know, what do you know? What is, how is my disease different from other people with the same kind of condition? Are there different opportunities for me? Are there any clinical studies that I can participate in? And where are they? And really understand, you know, when you get an opinion, you're getting somebody's opinion. What you really want to know is what are the different ways that this condition is treated and what are the outcomes? Because it's not always that there's one treatment that's better or worse. 
It's that, you know, the outcomes are different. And that's what you want to understand. Don't be afraid to ask questions. Don't be afraid of trials. Clinical studies are tomorrow's treatments today. So those are things that you can ask. Remember that you're the one with the power. And if, you know, there's many physicians and you can go get another one if you don't like the way they treat you. Brilliant. How concise was that? Next one. Uh, right, so we've done patients. Let's do uh, the research community. So I think the research community has to continue to ask questions. You know, what is the best way to characterize tumors, to push clinicians, to run experiments, and to work with clinicians who are able to get these early endpoints? You have to have teams of people working together. There are hundreds of people who work on the ISPY trial, on the wisdom trial, all these things. And to remember, it's not about owning it yourself and having your own thing. It's about being part of a team and driving aspects. So being efficient and trying to figure out how to make the resources go the farthest and to really encourage, you know, changes in clinical systems so that you get the data you need without it being a heroic effort. And to keep asking questions. Why is something working? Why is it not working? And what can we do to make it better? Very good. Where are we? Oh, three minutes, three minutes, seven seconds to go. Okay, uh, the next one is industry. So I would say to industry a couple of things. Um, there need to be people who are taking bold steps to really think about how to, I mean, there's so many cool ways to deliver drugs now to try and not just pile on to standard therapies, like in, in, in the cancer research community, not just make it all piled on, to try and figure out how does how, how do some of these new conjugates work and to replace it. And there are going to be some things that we need, you know, that, that are better. And I, I think we also have to have ways, if we can make the cost of trials m much lower and the efficiency of the systems much better, we can also make the drugs more affordable to be willing to take risk to make it better, to make it better, make the treatments better and to make it and to lower the financial toxicity and quality of life. The quality of life matters and not to give up on it. So if you have an equal drug that's less toxic to help work with the research community to measure it in ways that we can move it forward. Okay. Uh, healthcare. We'll go with healthcare okay. next. So, yeah. Yeah. You should know the answer to this one. This should well, be easy. Don't be satisfied. <laughs> don't think you're the expert because you know some answers. Um, you have to look and say, are the treatments we have good enough? Even if that's the standard or the guideline, you have to think about the person you're sitting across the table from or the chair from and saying, is anyone saying, wow, I think this option is an awesome option. <laughs> I'm excited about it taking this treatment. And then while that answer is no, your job is not done. You need to push for change. You need to find opportunities to participate in trials and make sure that when there's an opportunity that you get patients into these trials so that you can learn and that you demand systems that allow you to have feedback. Demand to be part of learning systems where you can be doing things that are better tomorrow than they are today. Whether it's, you know, better surgery, at, you know, and, 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 and that's, that's less toxic and to not think that more is better 
More is not better. More is more. And sometimes more is worse. Be discerning. Constantly challenge yourself, you know, and make sure that you have the data to justify what you're doing and why you're doing it. And don't frighten people and make it too urgent because people make decisions in the face of fear. Bring people calm. Help them understand what they have so they can make decisions that are right and consonant with their values. Excellent. I stopped that a bit early there. It was a bit of a time lag. Uh, Okay, final category is uh, governments or governments and payers, really. So I I would say the regulatory agencies and the payers are, are slightly different. The regulatory agencies, you know, I would say be bold, you know, find, you know, support the efforts to make research more efficient. The FDA has done that. They are one of the people that's helped move the, uh, the, the, the iSpy trial platform forward. And they are big fans of this. So again, you know, support people who are trying to be efficient, you know, really think harder about early, early endpoints, even if those early endpoints aren't perfect, they help accelerate the pace of change. It's so important. Be willing to take some risk you know, along with the rest of us. And, and I think the payers, the payers, the people who pay, they have to focus on healthcare value, not just whether something works, but is it less toxic and is it more affordable? Find the ways, especially the big payers, the big governments, they can set the pace. They can set the stage to say, we want options that provide healthcare value, better outcomes at less cost and less toxicity. Excellent. Very good. My mother died of breast cancer, sadly. Uh, and, you know, to, to know that there's people like you doing such amazing work is, um, you know, for our listeners and, and you know, well, anyone and anyone that's listening, it's, it's very comforting to know that there's people with such a passion. Yeah, well, you know, we didn't even get a chance to talk about all the different procedures that we're able to do to keep people's bodies intact. That would be Dr. Esselman Podcast 2.0. I look forward to it. That was Precision Medicine Forum Podcast. Visit precisionmedicineforum.com to get all the show resources and find out about our upcoming episodes and events. And please subscribe or follow on your podcast app so you never miss an episode.